The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Good day, everybody, and welcome to our latest Provoke Media Podcast. Um, I am Paul Holmes, and I have here as my guest today, Rick French, who is the founder of French West Vaughan, one of America's leading independent, I was going to say public relations agencies, but um, I think the topic of this conversation is going to show that uh, FWV is actually um, something a little bit more than that. Um, We're going to be talking about how um, Richard has grown his agency um, and evolved it into something that includes Um, a whole array of integrated services, content creation services, and and beyond, Um, usually uh, ahead of the curve. Um, You know, I think Richard Richard was into Peso before Peso had a name. Um, So welcome, Rick. Uh, Good to to have you here. Um, And first of all, congratulations on your 25th anniversary. Well, thank you, Paul. It's always great to uh, to chat with you, and uh, thank you for your thought leadership in the industry and helping helping pull our industry along. Because you've been doing that for as long as I've known you, which probably goes back uh, thirty years or more. Uh, we and we must have met each other when we were two, uh, but <laughs> we 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 are celebrating our twenty fifth anniversary uh, on April first, and. Uh, you know, it's it's been a it's been a it, what feels like a quick and very fun ride uh, from a from a small boutique uh, agency startup agency with a couple people and a couple clients to, I guess now about a thirty seven thirty eight million dollar agency with uh, six offices around North America and a, a great stable of clients and and people. So I feel very blessed that we've we've had that success. Just um, share a little, if you can, about your origin story, how, uh, how the firm came to be. So when I, uh, when I first started what was then Richard French and Associates, I, I was an associate at another uh, Raleigh-based public relations and advertising agency. And, and at that time, you know, they saw public relations as a below-the-line service. And I saw public relations as leading the conversations. And I had, I had risen to the point of overseeing both the advertising and the public relations side of the business. And the founders were um, uncomfortable with the growing influence and dominance of PR because they were old time ad guys. Um, and so rather than embracing where the industry was going, they were kind of um, almost fighting against the evolution of their own firm. And so I thought, well, you know, this is your firm. And so if you don't want to, uh, you don't want to follow where I think the industry is going, I will go out and, and do my own thing. And I found uh, venture capital backing, uh, which was very unusual at the time and, uh, and started the firm. And, uh, you know, we, we decided we were leading with the public relations discipline because we saw it as, multi-channel communications as opposed to one-way directed communication that we saw advertising as being and uh and kind of got out really early in a lot of trends um and kind of over the evolution of the agency it it is um we, we were very early into digital we were very early into licensing we were very early into long-form content 
And so, you know, my philosophy from the time I started it was that if something is, is going very well and very smooth, it's time to disrupt it and figure out a new way to look at the, what we're delivering for our clients and, and uh, try to be ahead of the curve. And I think we've done you know, a pretty decent job at it. Let, let, let me ask you a little bit about that sort of the, the pre-Richard um, French and Associates um, time, because you know, I, I think in that time there were dotted around the U.S. I mean, there's still plenty of them today, but it, but at that time there were dotted around the U.S. plenty of ad agencies that had sort of started PR subsidiaries or PR units that was seen very much as a, a bolt-on or an add-on. Um, and in some cases, um, the PR units had grown to the point where their their quality um, surpassed that of the ad agency that they were part of. And I think then the tension began to get really apparent um, that, um, that, that the inclination of an ad agency was always to recommend an ad campaign as the solution to the problem. And then, you know, essentially sort of click their fingers and say, come do some PR for this. Um, is, is that how you found it? And was that a frustrating model to operate within? I did. Um, in the firm that I was with, which is uh, no longer in existence, and it, it went out of existence, it was a very large regional advertising agency, Rocket Burkhead, Lewis and Winslow, <clears throat> that had a good stable of national clients. But um, that's exactly how they looked at it. And I think that what PR was starting to cast a shadow over the agency and the creatives in the agency got very concerned because we were winning all these very large PR assignments from uh, large national brands ranging from Volvo to Wrangler and so on, which happened to be clients of my firm and have been for 25 years now uh, when I left. But, but what ended up happening was they... Um, they looked at this and I think they, they just got uncomfortable because it wasn't the, it wasn't a, this one way controlled message anymore. You had to have conversations and, um, and, and they weren't used to that. And so, and, and they did look at, at, they, they enjoyed the revenue that PR was generating as incremental to the firm. But again, they called it a below the line service and that told you everything you needed to know. Um, you know, the way I would look at advertising today or content creation is, you know, obviously it's all integrated, but, but it has to start with multiple constituency groups having multiple conversations and advertising isn't set up inherently to do that. And so, you know, we, you know, the reason I left was because I saw a brighter future for the public relations industry with it being the lead discipline. And I think that, uh, you know, history has shown that certainly to be the case. And I think a lot of the best creative right now is being done by public relations agencies, not necessarily ad agencies, and uh, that, that really understand who their audiences are and then can direct the creatives to, to go out and speak to all of them as opposed to a one-size-fits-all model that advertising tends to employ. Right. So, um, you know, I, I remember the... The early years, you know, as you said, you and I had, had known each other for a while, um, and you guys were one of, you know, a, a good number of sort of small regional 
independence that I thought was doing interesting work, but um, I wasn't especially paying attention to. And I think it's fair to say that the first time that you registered in a big way with me was when you did something that I don't think I'd ever seen a firm of your size do before, which was buy an ad agency. What, how, how far into the, the, the sort of growth cycle of your firm was that? What prompted that? We were, we were two years in when I made the offer to buy Weston Bond, which was a very well-established regional ad agency that had twice won ad weeks, uh, small agency of the year. And I did it so that we could bring creative uh, as well as paid media planning and placement under, under our roof. And, um, you know, rather than losing the equity in the brand, uh, my firm was only two years old. I just said, let's put the names together. And that's where French West Vaughn came from. And that started a, a pretty aggressive acquisition strategy where then over the subsequent years, in addition to buying, uh, you know, an ad agency, I would buy individual uh, specialized firms that had practice areas that we wanted to be in or were already in and this kind of added to, to what we already had. And that became a very consistent strategy that I've employed over, over the 25 year arc of the agency. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think we were one of the first ad uh, PR firms to buy an ad agency that I I recall, um, and uh, I remember you calling that out at the time in a, in an op-ed piece about you know this be maybe this will become a trend. I, I remember going back and reading it many years ago. Um, so yeah, that's it, it, and it was it was a good strategy for us. You know, it was interesting at the time because when we bought that firm, one of the things that they were dealing with was the fact that they were seeing their clients in need of more services than just creative and media planning and placement. And so, um, you know, we picked up additional work uh, as, as we became an integrated agency. And, um, you know, so, so we, we had to drag them along though, because they were old line in the way that Rocket Burkhead was kind of an old line agency. And if an agency doesn't evolve and recreate itself all the time, it is destined to lose its relevance like any other consumer product or service. And so that's how I've always looked at consulting businesses. So how did you, um, how did you avoid the Rocket Burkhead problem um, of you know, the, the culture clash, the, I, I don't know, the sort of inherent superiority complex, I don't want to be reductive about it, of, of advertising agencies, and particularly of creatives in an, in an ad agency. And did you find it culturally challenging to bring these people in and have them be, you know, to have an ad agency be a subsidiary of a PR firm? I did. It was it was a challenge for sure. It, it uh, the people got along very well, and we did different things. But there was a little bit of tug of war as to uh, what was going to be the dominant discipline. And of course, as the acquirer of the firm, uh, I made it very clear where the dominant discipline and how account management would work. What we did very early on is rather than keep the account teams separate. We merged them together and we started to cross train our people so that they understood uh, they were multidisciplinary. And so 
it became, uh, rather than having to rely on an advertising account manager to recommend strategies that they weren't familiar with, we kind of forced an integration of those teams and working together so that um, we could take a agnostic view on what the best solution was for a client. And I went back and pointed to our mission statement which when I created the firm was that we were going to be a discipline neutral agency, even though we were considering ourselves to be a public relations firm. And what that meant and what I have preached over a quarter century is that our job is to bring our clients the best thinking and the best solutions to solve their fundamental business problems. Whether we have those services under one roof is irrelevant. Our job is to recommend what is needed uh, so that they grow and we have a long-term client relationship. So the strategy of making these acquisitions was to bring the services we were recommending already, but maybe didn't already have under one roof. And so, you know, we went out and acquired the ad agency and we've acquired digital firms and I, I acquired a licensing agency uh, many years ago that was, was a wildly successful venture for us. Uh, so that we could help our clients expand their brands into new product categories. And so, uh, you know, from, from where I, I sit, uh, the culture clashes are inherent in an acquisition. They're there every time we do one because we are all strong-willed people in the industry. We have our own thoughts and ways of doing things. But, you know, when you decide to sell your agency, one of the things that you have to do is, is embrace um, the, the philosophy of the, the acquirer, whether you really feel comfortable and want to do that or not, that's that goes with the territory. And so, um, you know, we, we figured out, I think a pretty good way to, uh, to allow it to work and, and, uh, shorten the cycle for integration, but no question was, there's always, uh, there's always a little bit of chafing. Yeah. I, I, I want to get on to the the sort of growth growth by acquisition and the way you've balanced acquisitions with organic growth in, in a moment. But just to stick with the integrated model that you had once once you had French and West and Vaughan, um, what how did you find um, clients? were looking at you know your your model did they did they find it odd that this was a pr agency with an ad agency subsidiary um were they were they very open to the idea did they not care as long as they got you know what they were looking for from each part of the business how, how did how did clients respond in general, they responded really well. Um, the, the enhanced services were something, even if they didn't immediately tap them, knowing they were there for them um, was a positive. I think that uh, certain clients put up you know, Chinese walls in some degree because they say, I already have an ad agency or I already have a PR firm. But over time, that those tended to break down and as client needs shifted, as digital became more prominent, as public relations, as earned media was becoming more challenging to, to get, um, in some cases, as newsrooms were paring down and things like that, as we went through various economic cycles, they started looking at the agency as, well, what can you do for me? You know, here's my needs. How can you meet them? And so over time, uh, we saw just 
we, we've seen our, our work change with so many clients. You know, we may have started in one place and we are in a completely different place several years or even decades later with them. And then, so let's, let's talk about sort of the, the string of acquisitions. I think it's fair to call them a string that followed. Um, again, fairly unusual for a mid-sized independent um, to be out there in the market um, snaffling up other boutique firms, mostly boutique firms um, in, in the PR business, but um, you were able to finance that and you were also able to integrate fairly successfully a series of acquisitions into your business. What, what were the challenges there and, um, and what were the benefits that you saw? The benefits were, were giving us um, access to certain clients and intellectual capital in terms of people and office infrastructure that helped add to our story. The, the way that I was able to finance it really was came about through, uh, yeah, I believe, and, and I haven't seen anything to, to be contrary to this statement. I believe we were the first agency in, in North America to really be in the licensing business and consulting. Um, that came about because I, I put some money into a licensing venture that was in bankruptcy with a handful of other people. And I became the majority owner of several well-known outdoor lifestyle brands that were in fine arts and the home space and so on. And as we concentrated with our team to grow those licenses and businesses, we started to expand into a lot of different product categories. We were doing a lot of different product uh, deals with the stars of HGTV and Bravo and things like that. So we were into that very early and building separate lines of businesses that were celebrity endorsed. And as those businesses really grew, those product lines grew, they became very, very important to the retailer that was licensing them. And over the uh, over a series of several years after really building the business, we, um, we were able to sell off some of those individual lines to the retailers themselves so that they would not have to pay higher licensing fees that we would require to protect those. And then ultimately packaged the company and sold it as a whole. And that resulted in a very large uh, return on investment for the five of us that owned the company and, and with me being the majority owner. And so what I did is rather than just go take those dollars and go move down to Barbados or, 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 or go to Ibiza, um, I, I put it into my own kind of fund to invest in other agencies and creative services and, and kinds of businesses. And that's what allowed me, we didn't have to take on any debt in any of these deals. And so every acquisition that I've done has been basically a debt-free acquisition that I have funded. And, uh, and I, I look at things every single day. I look at uh, things that will either bolt onto the agency or ways to continue to, to grow and enhance it. Or some, in some cases, you know, whether it's, you know, like my minor league baseball team or some of my beauty and cosmetic company that I own in, uh, with a couple of people out in Los Angeles, those are just outside. But even in those cases, there has to be a tie back to French West Vaughn doing work for those companies. So we create clients when every time I make one of those investments. And so, uh, you know, everything kind of works hand in glove pretty well. 
Okay. So let, let's be let's be fair here. Um, telling telling other PR agency owners um, buy, buy a licensing company in distress, build it up, and sell it for X million dollars is not necessarily advice that everybody a, a strategy that everybody could replicate. Um, <laughs> but um, but 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 tell me what advice you would give to sort of somebody somebody in your position. 15 years ago or 20 years ago, um, who wants to grow their firm and is looking at acquisitions, but doesn't know quite how to make that happen. Because what we're seeing today, and you know, we do research into this every year, is that the vast majority of acquisitions that happen in the PR business the last three or four years have been mid-size independents like yours buying smaller boutique PR firms or boutique firms in adjacent categories like digital and SEO. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but how would you advise somebody who's sort of looking to make the first one of those? Well, be fearless. Um, you know, I think that there's a decent chance it'll fail and don't be deterred. You know, when, um, you know, when I sold that licensing company, you know, the, the total proceeds that we collectively received over with the individual sale of the company, as well as the, the company as a whole, uh, went into the nine figures, right? So it was a very, very successful exit. Um, I would say that of the, of the firms that we've acquired, there have been some great, great successes. Uh, there have been some some failures in terms of ones that I feel like yeah they, it worked it might it might not have been a financial failure but it wasn't a cultural fit and uh, there was even one case and I won't name it where I gave the firm back to an individual because I just didn't want to be in business with her and uh, I didn't care about her buying it back I just didn't want anything to do with the person anymore. So it has to fit culturally. And I think for somebody that uh, where you're making a deal, if it doesn't feel right up front and everything is about what the founder of that business is going to get from the deal, as opposed to what the deal will do for both your business and theirs, if it doesn't, if, if that isn't the first thing that you're looking for and the negotiations get very contentious over roles and responsibilities and money and so on run. Because I have always had the philosophy that you take care of the business first and the business in turn will take care of you. But so many principles of agencies look at their agency as, well, that's my company. I need to take the first cut and whatever is left over, I will, I will for my lifestyle, after I support my lifestyle, I'll invest in the company. I see that with the small boutique firms all the time. They can't get out of their own way to think about, they need to sit last as the principal in the trough, or the food trough, not first. Do the right thing for your business and it'll grow. But what happens in, when you negotiate these deals so often is with the boutiques is they're so focused on what they're going to get in the deal. They can't see the bigger picture of how if you grow a bigger pie, they're going to get much more. And so when I would advise somebody looking at a deal to really think about that when they're in their conversations and negotiations so that if philosophically you're not aligned up front, don't waste your time. Doesn't matter how attractive it might look. 
Because when you buy an agency, so many people think they're buying billings, they're buying clients, and they're not. You're buying, you're buying, you should be looking at, at aligning with like-minded people that are as driven as you are to do great work for your clients. Because the reality is we all know clients come and go, revenue ebbs and flows. And so if you're doing it and you're basing your deal off of an acquisition of revenue and people, well, that's foolish because that, that is sand under your feet with the ocean coming in and out and it's gonna move. And the deal can go bad very, very quickly. So, so it really has to be about having the right philosophy in growing together through whatever business challenges come your way. And if you're not looking at it that way and both parties aren't, then, then it's not going to work. Just sort of in terms of when you're, when you're looking at, at a firm to, to acquire, um, are you looking for principals who want to stick around and, and be part of the growth story you know, beyond earnout, or are you looking for um, a good second tier of management that you feel you can you can incorporate into the business? Or what are the what are the priorities in terms of um, in terms of um, who's going to stay with you? Yeah, I, I'm I'm never looking for somebody who's looking for an exit strategy. Right. Um, if they're not looking to stay involved in the business and help grow it, uh, they know their markets, they they know their clients, then um, then it's a no go for us. Now that doesn't mean look we're not in the indentured servitude business. So you know somebody may choose to go on and want to do something in in some arc, and then in that case we are working together to ensure that that next level of management is there who can effectively run the business. Um, but we're not. Uh, in the Weston Vaughn acquisition, if I go back to that one in, in uh, the late 1990s, they were looking for an exit strategy in retirement. But we had, that was a very clear upfront. They were older. <clears throat> and and um, so we had time to bring in our own people and, and to get to know the clients. But very often uh, there, are, um, there are people who will say to me, I'm looking for an exit strategy. And my response will be, so am I, <laughs> you know, this isn't for us. Um, and so, but, you know, each deal is different. And I would say that, um, you know, it's, it's an incumbent upon the acquirer to create incentives for that principal so that they want to stay engaged and active in the business. Because once they don't own their firm anymore and you've acquired it, sometimes their passion for it ebbs. And so you, you've got to create a structure that is a win-win. Right. Um, and then sort of obviously the, the, the ad agency acquisition and then a series of smaller you know, boutique firm acquisitions was, I think, what flagged you guys to me as an interesting firm to follow and to watch. Um, the next sort of aha moment that I remember um, was the work that you did for Wrangler, um, where you were, and again, this, if, if this wasn't a first, it was one of the first that I'd ever seen, where you created a whole TV 
network and programming for, for a client. Now, Wrangler had been a client of yours for, for a long time, but how, tell me a little bit about how that came to be and what it, what it involved. So we, I'll take a step back to explain it. We were working with Speedo. And Speedo was a, uh, this was in advance of the Beijing Olympic Games where the Speedo laser racer suits were, were just taking the world by storm, right? right. That was our product launch. And um, I had recommended to Speedo at the time, the VP of marketing, that they should, they should take a serious look at the world of Speedo because people think of Speedo and they think of the small red, <laughs> you know, bikini style, uh, yeah. you know, thing. And they had a much broader brand where they had a lifestyle brand that was in a lot of different product categories and licensing and things like that. And I recommended that they look at Red Bull TV as a model for uh, what was happening out there with brands controlling their own content channels. And we gave them this big, big idea and strategy for how they could get into that in advance of the Olympics. And they loved the idea, but they just weren't sure how they could execute it. And we said, well, we can execute this for you. And uh, after a lot of discussions, they just couldn't get, get it funded corporately. So as we were looking at that, I said, you know, what Red Bull was doing was brilliant. And I saw opportunities at the time with one of the licensing company, I had helped create a television show for one of our, one of our licenses. Um, it was, it was Dick Idol's adventures on, on this outdoor uh, lifestyle channel here in the U S. And so we had experience in helping, you know, literally program and curate and produce the shows. And so when Wrangler was looking for new ideas and ways in which to grow its business, uh, because it was selling through traditional retail channels, uh, licensed retailers, and we, we looked at their what they were doing, and they were so big at, into rodeo, into country music, into NASCAR at the time. We said, there's a world of Wrangler out there the same way there's a world of Red Bull. And so we brought them the idea. And they had, at the time, the, the parent company was funding, had given a, a challenge grants to the marketing departments of all of their the VFO brands. And they were all kind of fighting for funding with big ideas. And this was a big idea to create the Wrangler Network. And so um, it, it got the support of corporate and the brand and they said, go do it. And then we, we created the Wrangler Network, which is now absolutely endemic to their brand because they get so many views. There, there was a period, and I think it probably, if I went and looked at today's metrics, where we were outdrawing at certain times of the year ESPN, for example. Uh, we were getting more daily viewers uh, during national finals rodeo, live stream the country music concerts. We live stream uh, George Strait's 50th anniversary, 50 number ones and special concerts. And all of a sudden um, the brand, not only did it become a lifestyle brand that people just went to when they're fans, but we started selling advertising to other like-minded, non-competitive brands. So it became a revenue generator for the brand. And, uh, you know, the Wrangler Network continues to go very, very strong today. And yeah, we're really proud of, uh, of what we built with, for them and with them. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I said at the very beginning that you know you guys were were peso before there was a name for it, and and you know that clearly was an owned channel that you guys were running. That you know, I I think that's still um, an aspect of the channel mix that a lot of people, um, and particularly a lot of PR PR people, um, feel is beyond or outside their their scope of expertise, um, but. Now that you you've been doing all of that, how how many of your clients are coming to you now for genuinely sort of channel neutral, um, media neutral campaigns um, that that are either fully integrated or at least a, a sort of open ended briefs? And how many of them are coming to you as a PR agency and then suddenly discovering that you can do all of these other things? Yeah, I think probably most of our existing clients, not all of them, but most of them look at us agnostically as to what we can do and where we fit in their marketing mix. The ones that are new business prospects in many cases come to us for a specific perceived expertise, whether that's public relations or digital social media marketing, um, advertising, uh, or, or, or even now, you know, content creation, you know, because of the, uh, you know, our, our pre-production subsidiary that's very successful. Um, but I, I would say that it's taken, it usually takes a little time and education with a lot of them. I think I've always had the philosophy that um, it's good to stand for something. And if you're trying to stand for everything, as even though we're fully integrated, you stand for nothing. So I am okay with us and will be forever okay with us wearing the public relations label as a public relations agency. That's a foot in the door. And then they will, they will then realize the breadth of agency services and scope and what we can offer once we actually have a relationship with them. That's up to our teams to cross sell. And so, um, but but once we start working with them, I think there's a lot of aha moments with clients where they're saying, well, can you help us with social? Can you help us create content? Um, and, and so we're doing a lot of that. And I would say that um, in many cases today, I, I might argue social media, digital media is leading most conversations. It's not even public relations. It's certainly not advertising. Uh, even though we do a ton of creative for clients, it is really about uh, social and digital and how to engage with uh, consumers and audiences they want to reach through those channels. Right. Um, and so tell me a little bit about how that part of your business evolved. And I mean, I, you know, I, I, I could quibble with you about whether that is in fact just public relations through another channel, which would be my argument. Um, but, but clearly it does bring you into competition with different kinds of agencies that, that come out of, you know, either digital first or social first environments um, that presumably um, have a pretty, pretty glib line in depositioning PR firms um, being able to do this. So how have you, how have you grown that business and, and learned to compete in that business? So I, I think that, um, no, I think you're right. First of all, I do think you're right. It, you, I, I would argue with you that, uh, that it is another form of public relations because you are reaching 
uh, a very broad set of consumers that have an ability to talk right back to you instantly. And, and so that, that is an extension of public relations for sure. Um, and, you know, in terms of competitively, yeah, we run up against specialized firms all the time. I think that um, what we would say is we have, again, we, we have this discipline neutral kind of approach. So sure, you could you can align yourself with specialists in particular areas and you have to manage five or six agency relationships. Whereas in our case, we you have, you have one set of uh, account people and gatekeepers that are that are trained across multiple disciplines. And if you're just doing business with a, uh, a digital firm or an ad agency or a PR agency, and that's the only thing they have to sell, then that will be the solution to every problem. And so, you know, from our standpoint, we really play the discipline neutral kind of approach and say, we're consultative to you. Let us look at the problem. You may have a perception that you need this, but that may or may not accomplish your goals. And so we've got a group of really smart people who will look at things holistically and come back to you and offer the best recommendation we're capable of giving you. And in that way, it allows us to compete against the specialist firms. Now, I'd, I'd be remiss, I think, if, if we had this long conversation and I didn't get to one of the most interesting things about Rick French, which is... Um, first of all, you're a successful entrepreneur beyond just the PR and marketing disciplines. Um, and secondly, you've built this second life um, in, in, in and around Hollywood and, and the movie business. So um, tell us a little bit about how that came about and how you juggled that with, you know, continuing to be hands-on running a successful mid-sized PR firm. Well, thank you for those kind words, first of all. And, and uh, yeah, Hollywood is, is, is an interesting place. Um, I, I, we got into the business because it was, I saw it as a natural evolution of what we were doing. If a public relations advertising and social media agency is largely short form content driven, then television and film is a form of long form content. And since we had already been involved in this arc through the licensing company with creating our own television show, and then through the Wrangler network and helping them program a 24 seven network, it wasn't a big leap for me personally to start to get involved in first financing uh, a number of uh, Hollywood projects that I, I wanted to be involved with, and then ultimately getting involved in producing. And so, you know, right now I've got five pretty major projects set up with, with global studios, you know, ranging from Netflix to Warner Brothers to STX, uh, where we are uh, producing stories, uh, telling stories. I do a lot in dramas and biopics and so on. And, um, and work with the studios, work with distributors. Um, I saw that as an opportunity to lightly and uh, organically include some of our clients in those storylines. So here's an example, you know, I'm, I'm producing the lead producer on retelling Buddy Holly's story. I, I did that because um, two things, I've had the privilege of being on the board of trustees of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for 16 years. And Buddy Holly was one of, in our first class of inductees is one of the most influential artists of all the time. Of all time. 
I also um, have the privilege of serving on the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation Board. And, um, and in my discussions with Buddy's widow, Maria Elena Holly, she had told me on many occasions that the first Buddy Holly story, which was Gary Busey's movie that made him famous, um, and, and was the first music biopic ever, um, major biopic ever, that she wasn't really involved in the story. She really wasn't included. And, and it didn't tell a complete story of how Buddy Holly helped. He, he was essentially the Jackie Robinson of his time in music in helping break down the color barrier in music where there were segregated audiences, there were segregated, you know, the, the artists didn't perform with one another. And so as I listened to those stories, I knew some of the surviving members of the Winter Dance Party and the Biggest Show of Stars Tour. They were friends through my association with the Rock Hall and I sought them out for conversations about this. And they kind of confirmed for me what she had said, which was, um, and he, he, he was a civil rights pioneer in that way. And so I, I, I looked at that and said, I wanted to tell that story. And so I began this process of, of um, putting the movie together, bringing on, you know, well-known director and attaching talent and getting the financing. And now we, we would have already made the movie if not for COVID. You have to have all these crowd scenes that you couldn't shoot during COVID. And so um, I'm planning to put it <laughs> me into production in partnership with a major studio uh, later this year. And I see that if you think about this, Buddy Holly grew up in Lubbock, Texas, right? In the late 1950s, just as Wrangler jeans were really exploding. You, you have to know that I will be putting our clients products into that movie. And you know, every time there has been a collection, for example, of um, where Wrangler did a partnership with Bohemian Rhapsody because Freddie Mercury used to wear Wrangler jeans all the time. They instantly sold out those collections. But just imagine when it's part of, uh, even though you, um, you remember Buddy Holly um, in the black suit and the glasses and things like that, but growing up, he and Waylon Jennings and all that wore Wrangler in Texas. So there will be uh, opportunities like that for our clients in doing product placement uh, deals and so on. So I saw Hollywood as an opportunity to further uh, cement uh, organically what we could offer our clients and getting them involved in film and television production and things like that. And, uh, and we're doing it. I mean, we're actually doing it and including them and uh, it'll be subtle. And when it comes out, you'll just start to notice it. It's not going to be an in-your-face product placement kind of deal. I know how the deal works. You know, for me to get a product placement deal with Coca-Cola, for example, I need to show 60 seconds of the can clearly uh, on screen to get a certain amount of money. I don't have to play that game. Creatively, I can just go to our clients or go to anybody, you know, through and, and say, look, we're Sure, that's one way to help you with production expenses and so on. But since I've got the financing all set up, I want the movie to be authentic. But we're going to look to our clients first to see where the opportunities exist for them. And I think, again, for us, it's one of the things that keeps the agency hot and relevant after 25 years. It, it helps transform us. And so I... Um, I'm going to continue to look for opportunities like that where we can create a really nice halo for the agency. And I think Hollywood does that. Yeah. And, and there, there are, um, I think, relatively few PR entrepreneurs who've 
built you know on businesses of any kind outside of the the pr industry um certainly not you know simultaneously with continuing to run um uh, the, their own their own agency so that that's that's pretty impressive it must take some juggling <laughs> I there's there's some there's some long hours um yeah. but you know I've, I've never felt like my job was work and so i enjoy what i do i i I enjoy the Hollywood part of it. It puts me in contact with some really interesting people. Um, I've got a project right now that uh, Dwayne Johnson and George Lucas and I are doing together um, for for a major network. Um, So when you're having those conversations with people and engaging, um, it keeps things fresh. It keeps it interesting. It gives you access to influencers and talent. And I'm always looking for ways to figure out how is this going to benefit French West Vaughn because the agency is still the goose, uh, you know? And so I look at that as uh, with that philosophy that I need to keep taking care of the agency, keep growing it. And uh, that'll create incremental opportunities for all of my people and myself and so on. Uh, I, so I don't mind putting in the long hours necessary to, um, to grow the multiple businesses that I'm involved with in parallel. Um, I, I control my own schedule. I, my secretary or my administrative assistant does not control my calendar. Uh, I don't let anybody put anything on my calendar. And I, I look at each day and decide um, this is what I'm going to prioritize today based on needs and deadlines. And that's how I, I keep some sanity and control of everything that I'm kind of involved with. Great. That's great. We're, we're probably running up against the boundaries of, uh, of our time here. Um, I, I will say it, it's interesting listening to you to talk about that, sort of the, the whole entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, a few years ago, as I was looking at where we were going, um, I, I sat down with a lot of people who, uh, and we had discussions about sort of whether I'd created a business or, or a quote unquote lifestyle business. Um, you know, a company that just allowed me to do the things that I wanted to do. Um, it it seems to me that you've managed to do both of those things. You've got a you've got a business here that gives you an amazing lifestyle. Um, perhaps a little busier than 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 I would necessarily want to be. Um, but also is a thriving business in its own right. It's certainly, from my perspective, one of the more interesting entrepreneurial journeys um, in the business that we cover. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to uh, just sit and talk about it. Thanks, Richard. Oh, it's a pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, and uh, you know, if, if, you, if you love what you're doing, it, it really doesn't feel like work. And, and so since my since my investments and my energies are spent around the pillars of essentially media, right? And as an extent of the, of the agency business, entertainment and sports, those are three areas that if I wasn't working, that's what I would spend my time doing. So, so if you, if you look at that, being involved with it, and, and uh, you know, producing a music docu-series for a streamer right now, or doing things, putting on a charity concert for one of the charities I'm involved with and bringing in big name artists. To me, that's not work at all. It, that, that, that's fun. And so, and I, I get the, the, the ability to be part of it and the gratification of, 
of, of uh, producing something that I'm proud to have my name attached to. And so I think that, you know, I've, you hear that philosophy all the time, right? That, that, you know, if you love what you do, you've never worked a day in your life. Well, that's kind of how I feel about um, French West Vaughn and how I feel about the other things. And so I would encourage anybody, uh, you know, that, uh, that has those dreams and aspirations, it's absolutely doable. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen magically. Um, you got to work at it. But if you have a big vision and you have a big dream, there will be capital there that follows good ideas. There will be opportunities. There's, there's never a shortage of opportunities for creative people to come up with something unique. And so I'd encourage everybody who's listening to this to just go for it. And it's, it doesn't, um, uh, we're not in the rocket science business. Um, you create your own opportunities and, uh, you know, go out and do it. And just like you have done with this publication and, and then you have created a, um, the, through the evolution of, of um, your branding, through what you've done, uh, you know, in creating a really thriving special events business. I mean, you've got something in which you are recognizing the best in creativity every single year, Paul, and, and you've done it in a way where people, you've built your business where people really value the recognition that you provide to them because it helps validate the campaigns that they can merchandise back to clients. So you had a vision as well and you followed it and it's been really successful. So uh, thank you for your support of the industry. Thank you for all you've done for all of us really um, in the industry to shed a spotlight on the work we're doing. And I, I don't think any of us who really understand um, how important the trade media is to what we do uh, ever lose sight of the contribution that you and Provoke and previously the Holmes reported that have made to our industry. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, I've helped very much as, as I know you are by a great team of people around me. Um, thanks, Rick. Uh, it's been good to talk. Um, I think it was, it's been a fascinating journey. Um, I, you're, you're one of the firms that was founded after I started covering the business. So I've got to cover your firm through its entire life cycle so far. Um, it's been fun to watch and I'm sure it'll be more fun to watch in the future. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.